0: Father, it is amazing, astonishing, great news that into our world, pining so long in sin and error, you have come, you have sent your son into what seems oftentimes like a hermetically sealed bubble, this earth, this globe, this world of human beings. And Lord, we have proven over and over again that we can't figure it out. Our ingenuity, our smarts, our efforts at forming a utopia by ourselves have all failed through history. They're failing now. But Lord, you have broken into history by your son, Jesus Christ, by the incarnation. Light has come to a dark world And Lord, only you could do that. Only you can rescue the people that you have created. And so we thank you for the rescue that is Bethlehem and then Calvary. Father, as we open your word again, and as we consider the wonder of the incarnation, may that sense of wonder come afresh. And Holy Spirit, may this time just be a great time of worship to you as we consider what you have done. We pray your encouragement, your consolation, your guidance, your leading, your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. The shepherds out on the Judean hills were largely uneducated people who didn't earn very much money. Some rabbinic texts, Jewish rabbinic texts, labeled shepherds as unclean, while other rabbinic texts declared that shepherds were not fit to be witnesses in a court of law. By society standards, at least, shepherds were lower class. They were regarded as being relatively unimportant. And yet it was to these lowly types, to the shepherds that God manifested himself in overwhelming glory in the moment when Jesus was born. The divine visitation to these lowly shepherds gets a significant amount of space, especially in Luke's telling, in Luke's gospel, the telling of Jesus' birth, Luke 2.8 to Luke 2.20, Has to do with the shepherds and their experience. The angel appearing to the the shepherds, the, the luminous glory that shines around them, the fear that overtook them, the announcement made to them of the birth of the baby, and then their hasty trek over to Bethlehem where they see the baby lying in an animal manger. Now in their role with sheep and with lambs, the shepherds knew all about animal mangers. They had fashioned mangers. They had worked so often with the straw that was put inside the manger for the animals to eat. This was their territory. I think probably the shepherds would have been far less comfortable going to see the baby Jesus if he had been lying in some golden crib uh, inside a palatial palace that had marble floors. But here was Jesus in this ordinary peasant surrounding that the shepherds identified with. Friends, the place that God had chosen for the arrival of the incarnate Christ was a plain and unadorned manger. Isn't it incredible? There had been no place for Mary and Joseph when they had arrived in Bethlehem, but the baby couldn't wait, as babies do. Mary went into labor, and the no place for Jesus' arrival became this makeshift place, this manger with the lowly shepherds standing by. This was God's chosen place for the arrival of his presence in Jesus, God with us there in a plain old manger. The eternal Son of God become flesh lying in a manger. The presence of God on earth the glory of God come down, no longer in... Whoa, there we go. I get too excited. <laughs> I tell you, it's Christmas, right? Hopefully that'll clean up. Yeah, I think that's the first time that's happened. Thank you, Michael, very much. Appreciate your service, brother. Clutzy pastor, here we are. All right. Okay, so we'll get back into it. So... <clears throat> as we were saying, the presence of God on earth, the glory of God come down no longer in the grand temple of Solomon, no longer in the wilderness tabernacle, but there lying resident in this dependent, fragile infant in the manger, God with the lowly, amen? God with those who had been ignored by high society, god with us and the glory the glory the 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 resplendent heavy glory of god that had featured in the garden of eden before adam and eve had fallen into sin the weighty blazing glory of god that had filled the wilderness tabernacle the palpable overwhelming glory that had filled the temple of Solomon. And now as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there is terrific, weighty glory. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and what? The glory of God, not by accident, shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord was of such bright, think of it, luminescence around the shepherds that it terrified them. At least they were still conscious. I probably would have passed out in that moment. God's glory had come again to dwell on earth in a temple of flesh the glorious second person of the eternal Trinity, think of it, the eternal Trinity become flesh. As Michael Byrd has said, the whole sway, the whole sway of redemptive history has been preparing itself and getting ready for this, for the unveiling of God in the flesh. Wow. Yes, the presence of God in the garden and then in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple, that was all preparation for this moment when the word became flesh. The wonder of this, the wonder of the word becoming flesh, the wonder, of God taking on human nature. The wonder of the incarnation, I think, is nicely summarized by Robert Ledham, he's a a systematic theologian, when he writes this, that in the incarnation, I love this, in the incarnation, eternity and time intersect, creator and creature are conjoined God and man are united. Again, the wonder of the birth of Jesus is that eternity and time intersect, creator and creature are conjoined, God and man are united. Well, friends, this is all too much. It really is. The word becoming flesh is such a breathtaking, Paradigm shifting development in the history of our world that the only appropriate response is joy. Peter Latehart captures this really well, the sense of Christmas joy. He says, the do- listen to this: the dominant response to the good news of Christmas is joy. Nowhere in the New Testament is there more singing than in the early chapters of Luke. Isn't that significant? Nowhere is there more rejoicing. Nowhere is there more spontaneous praise. Gabriel, he says, is a herald of joy. John leaps in the womb for joy, dancing like David in the presence of the glory of God. Angels announce good tidings of great joy. Anna and Simeon rejoice that they have seen the salvation of Yahweh. And then Leithart says this to theologically conservative Baptists like us. I love this. He says, we mustn't be so afraid of being mistaken for charismatics that we miss the truth. The joy of Christmas looks a lot like giddiness, just as the joy of Pentecost could be mistaken for drunkenness. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy, 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 how great our joy. God with us. Now, have you ever noticed how God with us is found both at the start and at the end of Matthew's gospel? Like bookends to the entire gospel. So at the start of The book of Matthew, of course, we have 123. We probably know this one well. Behold, it's a great Christmas verse, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Jesus. And then right at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have Emmanuel himself, now the risen Jesus, saying, In 2820, right at the end, behold, I am what? With you. That's you. Always. How often? Always. To the end of the age. So Matthew bookends his entire book very significantly with Emmanuel, with notices of God's presence with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born, crucified, risen and ascended and soon coming is God with us, amen? God's divine presence with us. But friends, let's turn the focus back to Bethlehem again and let's ask the question, basic question, why the incarnation? Why did the Word become flesh? Why did God decide that the same Son who existed eternally would come to exist now as a man? For what purpose was the incarnation? And the Apostle Paul gives us a very clear answer to that question in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says very plainly that Christ Jesus came into, there's the the manger, came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Salvation was the purpose of Christmas. Calvary was the purpose of Bethlehem. Or to put it another way, the purpose of the incarnation was rescue. And in this regard, it's noteworthy that in the birth story in Luke 2.11, the angel identifies the baby Jesus as a savior who is Christ the Lord, a savior. The why of the manger is the cross where Jesus comes and does his saving work. You know, God is really astonishing in his great mercy Isn't he? In his great mercy toward undeserving, fallen, sinful humankind who willfully rebels against him. Why the incarnation? Well, God clearly saw, again, going to Michael Bird, he's written this God clearly saw that humanity had fallen into such a state of corruption and rebellion that it would result in humanity's inevitable. Annihilation by its own debasement and as the consequence of divine judgment. The incarnation was necessary, Bird says, because only the Logos, only the Word, who created humanity from nothing, could rescue humanity and unite them with their divine maker. Amen? This is what God has done. He sent Jesus Christ, born of a woman, to take on flesh. And then Bird points us, I, this is fantastic, the New Jerusalem Bible's rendering of the famous John 3.16. You know John 3.16, the way the New Jerusalem renders it. Personally, I'm very intrigued by how the New Jerusalem Bible renders John 3.16. It's, it's a viable rendering uh, of the original Greek uh, construction, but it's perhaps a little bit different than you and I are used to. So here's the New Jerusalem Bible's version of John 3, 16. It goes like this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And it's the beginning of that rendering that's interesting, isn't it? For this is how God loved the world, or this is the way in which God showed his love to rebellious, corrupt sinners like you and I, by doing what? By giving his son. If we want to know how God's love toward undeserving sinners has been demonstrated, how has it been demonstrated, we find, the demonstration in the father sending his son to be born, to live, to teach for a few decades on the earth, and then to die on the cross for sinners. That's where we look. And as we are considering the love that God has shown for us in the cross especially, let's also think on this. I want you to think first of all of a perfect community. Do you know any perfect communities on this earth? (laughs) Okay, if you can, think of a perfect community, a community where each person was unchangingly present with the other person's always. And this community had no beginning and had no end. Can you think of that? The Father, Son, and Spirit are that community. The Trinity had dwelt together eternally. The Trinity had been unbroken in mutual love, in mutual self-giving forever. Father, Son, and Spirit had never known anything but such perfect community. But now, Like Abraham with Isaac going from the land of the Philistines to Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, the father in heaven goes with his son from the manger in Bethlehem to the hill of Calvary. But unlike Isaac being released at the last moment from his peril, the Son of God is not released. He is nailed to the cross and in that moment, he is forsaken by the Father. Forsaken for the first time in Trinitarian history. The Son cries out, as he's hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son who had always been with the father for all eternity is forsaken by the father. Why? Well, because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus who knew no sin was made sin on the cross made sin. All the repulsive deeds and words, all the violence and the rebellion against God and the foulness and the perversity, cursedness and the lawlessness, of millions upon millions of people across the ages was laid on Jesus Christ. Think of it. He became, was made sin in that moment, and the Holy Father, the Holy Father forsook him. Just think of it, friends. The Son of God experienced absence now instead of the unbroken, eternal presence of the Father that he had forever enjoyed. And he did it for us, believers. Yes. The crucified Jesus Christ took our sin. All our rebellion and foulness and perversity and lawlessness. He took our sin, he was forsaken by the Father in our place, forsaken, so that we don't have to be. Amen? He was condemned to death so that we don't have to be. He is our substitute on the cross who became a curse for us, for us. He experienced the absence of the Father, listen, the absence of the Father so that we could be brought into the eternal presence of Father, Son, and Spirit. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I know my problems. I know my sin and my transgression and my hotness for God one moment and ice coldness for God the next moment died for me. The purpose of Bethlehem, the manger, Christmas, the birth was the cross of Calvary. The greater David shed his blood for the sake of others. The first David made many others bleed. There was blood on David's hands, and so God had not allowed David to build the temple. Remember that from our time in the temple last week. The greater David, Jesus, crucified and risen, exalted, by the Father for his willing obedience in the cross, he is given the role of building a temple. And that temple is called his church. Jesus uses construction language. He uses construction language as he speaks of his temple in Matthew 16, 18, listen. He says, I will what? I will build, that's a construction word. I will build my church, my temple, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a hopeful verse that is. It's very interesting that the Greek word translated build in that verse is the same Greek word that gets used repeatedly In the Greek translation of 1 Kings 8 that the gospel writers and the apostles had at their fingertips as they're writing the New Testament, it's used repeatedly in the Greek translation of 1 Kings 8 where the building, the construction of the first temple, Solomon's temple is being discussed. Solomon had built a temple to the Lord And now the one greater than Solomon's temple, greater than Solomon, greater than David, is doing some temple building of his own. But in this case, the stones of the temple are living stones, amen, the people of the church. And following the lead of Jesus, the apostle Paul also calls the church, God's building, the people of the church, God's building in 1 Corinthians chapter three. So we believers, are you a believer today in the Lord Jesus Christ? We believers united to the risen high priest and perfect sacrifice Jesus, we are God's house. God's building. And just as God's spirit had filled the Garden of Eden, And then his spirit had filled the tabernacle. And then his spirit had filled Solomon's temple and then had filled the incarnate Christ who was God's mobile tabernacle on the earth and temple. Just as he fills all of those, so at Pentecost, the spirit fills the building called the church. The spirit fills the living stones who are united to the risen Jesus. Listen to the report of God's spirit filling the temple called the church in Acts chapter two. Verses one and two, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. Boy, that sure sounds a great deal like the reports of God's glory filling the tabernacle and filling the temple, does it not? Luke continues in verses three and four, and divided tongues as of what? Fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. There had been divine fire in the tabernacle, according to Exodus 40, verse 38, now there is divine fire on the new dwelling place of God, his church. Verse four, and they were all, what? Filled. With the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utter- utterance. They were filled. The people of Christ's temple were filled. Not a building, not a tent out in the wilderness, but they were filled. The Holy Spirit of God indwells his church. Amen. We, the body of Christ, are the place of God's dwelling on earth. In the tabernacle, the temple and the incarnate Christ, God dwelt among his people. Now by the risen Christ in the spirit, he dwells within his people. No longer among, but within. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know, speaking of the church, that you are, You are God's temple. You are, and that God's spirit dwells in you. (laughs) And so then my friends, the question we need to ask here is what is appropriate and what is inappropriate in the temple called Christ's church? We won't be exhaustive in our coverage here, but for one thing, it is appropriate and it is necessary and it is commanded for us, his temple, to be resolutely going about the happy business of teaching and preaching, Christ-centered apostolic doctrine in the temple. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To quote Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 20 and 22, listen to the temple language he uses here as he speaks of the church. He says, this temple called the church is, quote, built, there's that word again, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, he's talking about the the church, the people, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, in the Lord, in him you also are being built together, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So to jealously stick to the foundation of the apostles and Christ the chief cornerstone, to do that is to adorn the temple with gold, silver and precious stones that paul talks about in 1 corinthians 3 we stay away from the wood hay and stubble and we go for the precious gems of christ-centered sound doctrine and teaching but what is inappropriate in the temple called christ's church well paul helps us a great deal in 2 Corinthians 6.16 when he reminds us that idols, idols have absolutely no place in the presence of God in the temple. Speaking of the church, Paul asks this, what agreement has the temple of God, he's talking about the church here, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And what's the answer there? Of course the answer is there is absolutely zero agreement between the temple of God, his church, and idols, be they material financial idols, or sexual idols, or self idols, or any other sort of idols. And Paul continues, this is about the clearest statement in the New Testament we have, for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, what has God said. Well, then Paul quotes Leviticus 26:12. In the original context of Leviticus 26:12, God was talking there about how he would dwell with his people in the tabernacle. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul applies that Old Testament verse to the church that is united to the crucified, risen, and ascended Son of God. Just as the tabernacle and the temple and Christ the temple had no space for idols because idols are forbidden in God's presence, so the church has no place for idols within it because the church is the dwelling place of God blood bought by the precious blood of the son who paid such an extravagant price to forgive idolaters. And so may God continue to help us to destroy idols, church, to prevent the entrance of idols into his living temple. May each of us, all of us together, keep ourselves from idols, amen? First John five twenty one. little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, friends, today is the final sermon in our Advent series on God with us. In Eden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Christ, and in Christ's church. We end now with just praise and wonder, I think appropriate for the season. So I hope you'll come with me here as we wrap this up. So we began this brief series of sermons, if you remember, with the Garden of Eden, God's presence with Adam and Eve in his creational sanctuary, his creational temple. God's glory covered the earth in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 before the fall of humankind into sin. Well, the prophet Isaiah prophesied a new heavens and a new earth in Isaiah 65, a new Jerusalem that God would create where the sound of weeping, imagine, the cry of distress would not be heard. Where the wolf and the lamb would graze together. So Isaiah is describing the new heavens and the new earth and in the context of that description, God says in Isaiah 66 verse one, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, and he's talking to human beings here, what is the house that you would build for me? The house, the temple that Isaiah prophesied, would not, in fact could not, be built and made by human hands. Just as the temple in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is a temple If you read the description carefully, that would be impossible to build by human beings. The temple that these prophets prophesied is the final eternal temple that God builds, described fully by the apostle John at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the new heavens, and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that is announced by a voice from the throne that says, listen to what it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, 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 man. I wish I could. (sighs) (laughs) He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be what? with them as their God, God with us. As he had been in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, so he will be at the return of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, face to face for eternity. And listen to what he'll do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you been crying tears of sorrow lately? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And just like Eden and the tabernacle and the temple and Jesus and the church, the new Jerusalem has the glory of God, according to Revelation 21:11, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And just as a river had flowed out of the original creational temple in Eden and was prophesied by Ezekiel, the threshold of the temple, all that water coming out of it, so now the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the lamb, Revelation 22, 1. And just as Eden had featured the tree of life, so the new heaven and the new earth features the tree of life, but now in good apostolic fashion, it's escalated because now the tree is on both sides of the river. Revelation 22:2, for the healing of the nations. In the Garden of Eden, there had been that violent intrusion of the talking, cunning serpent. And in the new heavens and the new earth, were, there will not be anything accursed, according to Revelation 22:3. And how about Revelation 21:23? Imagine this. This is coming. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God. Imagine. The glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. In the heavenly country bright, need they know created light. Thou its light, its joy, its crown. Thou its sun, which goes not down. There forever may we sing alleluias to our King. Friends in Christ, from the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the incarnate Jesus, to the church, to the new Jerusalem. God has been determined to dwell with his people. And he has, and he does, and he will. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what a drama, what a story you are unfolding. We love you and we trust you and we praise you and we give you all glory and honor that you are due. And Father, during this Christmas season, I pray for the brokenhearted, if there's someone here that is brokenhearted, that you would bind up the wounds, walk closely, be Emmanuel to them, God with that person. Show them your faithfulness and loving kindness and grace and mercy. And may we be a witness, Lord, to your power and your love as we walk through our days. In Jesus' name, amen.